So if you haven't been to Soma before, haven't been in a while, we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapters 5 through 7 records Jesus' sermon that's sort of establishing what it means uh, to be what we've called in the series a people of resilient hope in an anxious world. And so at that time, there was socioeconomic anxiety, political anxiety, um, you know, religious anxiety. Today, socioeconomic, religious, political anxiety. I don't think I need to establish that. And so what Jesus offers in this sermon is almost a manifesto for what it means to be a people uh, not who kind of cover their ears and go la, 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 and wish for a better world by blocking out what's actually real, but people who can receive the real world as it is and live in the real world as people who offer, have hope and who offer hope because of their strength and their rootedness in God the Father. And so he's already talked a little bit in Matthew 6 about prayer. Um, This is sort of prayer part two. And um, I think he comes around and gives a part two because in part one, he sort of upended some common practices of prayer in those days. He told them first, don't pray like a Pharisee. Brandon Shields came and preached on this. He's a pastor of Soma Midtown a few weeks back. So Jesus tells us not to pray like a Pharisee, someone who has this extravagant, impressive, eloquent, public prayer life, but then their heart is completely alien to you. They have no private relationship with the Father. He says that's what we need. What we need is a heart with the Father. He also says don't pray like a pagan. So the non-Jewish religions generally got their attention, the attention of their gods by eloquence or by extravagant actions, by things to impress the gods into giving them what they want. And so Jesus says you don't need to do that. God knows what you need before you ask him. He knows what's in your heart. And so you don't have to impress him to get anything from him. He's your good father, he said. And so he's established, one, some things that we're, we don't need to do with prayer, some ways we don't need to pray. And he's also, through this sermon, put a lot of attention on uh, intensifying, in a sense, the demands of God and intensifying the holiness and the righteousness of God uh, in a way that exposes our unholiness and our lack of righteousness. And so what could have come through this sermon, and maybe you're feeling it a little bit if you've been listening and kind of walking through this with us, is one, you could get the question of, well, why am I supposed to pray? If God knows everything, if God's in charge of everything, and, you know, he's already told me some ways he doesn't want me to pray, why, why bother with it at all? And then two, if I am as wrong from the heart out, if I am as sinful as God has said that I am, uh, which is a foundational tenet of Christianity, then who am I to pray? You know, that's, a, that's something that most Christians walk through at some point is a, a radical just sickness with our own nature. And that can come with the idea of like, why, why would God want me? What kind of God would want me to be talking to him? Who am I to bring my desires to God? And so what Jesus gives us in this passage is he addresses those questions with this invitation that's so general, it is actually kind of hard to study and prepare for, but it's an invitation for us to come to God. He tells us how to pray, and then he tells us why it is that we can pray the way that we do. And so the first thing that he tells us in terms of why, you know, why bother to pray and how do we pray is in verse 7. Let me read it. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So what he tells us here is that in one sense, prayer 
is as simple as a kid asking his or her parent for something. Um, we have three kids. They are three, two, and one right now. The one-year-old is nonverbal. She still hasn't speaking yet. Um, so this morning, I had the other two. I had them all three, but, you know, two talking kids for about 45 minutes. So from the time they woke up to the time I left to come here, had them for about 45 minutes. I tried to count the number of times they asked me for things in those 45 minutes. And with two kids, I lost count. Like, I tried. I got somewhere up in the double digits, and then I just lost it because I couldn't keep track of how often they asked me for things. They want to put their shoes on. They want their shoes off. They want the door open. They want the door closed. They want this for breakfast. They want that for breakfast. They definitely don't want that for breakfast. They just ask and ask and ask and ask because I'm their dad. I'm the one who has the power to give them what they want, and they have these million little desires bubbling up in them all the time. That's the way that little kids are. And in one sense, Jesus is saying that's what God wants for us, that we can ask God that simply, that thoughtlessly. You know, I could be helping move a piano, and my kids would be like pulling on me, asking for a piggyback ride, you know. Um, they, they have no thought to what I'm doing, no regard for what I'm doing. They have their desire, and they just bring it in the moment. That's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to be praying relentlessly to God, like a child asks relentlessly of the Father. But he doesn't just want us asking. He says, ask, seek, and knock. Um, Now, there's not some kind of secret formula of you have to ask, and then you have to seek, and then you have to knock. He sort of uses these uh, different but related images to build a picture of relentlessness. And so asking is, you know, standing there asking the question, yanking on uh, my dad's pant leg. Seeking is going after something that I've lost and that's precious to me. Um, this pen, I wouldn't say it's particularly precious to me, but this is my favorite kind of pen, this Pilot V5 precise thing. Um, you know, other pens, they come, they go, I find them, I lose them, it's fine. If I lose this thing, I'm looking for it. You know, I'm starting my day looking for that pen, and so I'm looking, it's under things, is it, I'm going under tables, I'm opening drawers, I'm, uh, I'm giving up precious minutes of my day to find my pen because it matters to me. Is it silly that it matters to me? Probably. But it does, uh, these kind only. Um, we lost our keys a couple weeks ago, and uh, we have literally two sets of keys that open both of our cars. One set gone means we have one set of keys that we're working with. We upended our house looking for those keys. We were looking in the tops of closets, which there's no way the keys were in the tops of closets. You know, we were, we were looking in cabinets inside the crock pot. You know, it's like we're going everywhere looking for these keys that as we get more desperate. And we finally found them last week. We had to make do with like two weeks with one set of keys. But, um, you know, we finally found them, but we looked everywhere for them because we lost them and we needed them. And, uh, and then even knocking, Jesus builds the, adds this third image um, and the first thing I thought of as I was studying this was uh, Kramer from Seinfeld. Um, if you're not familiar with Seinfeld, it's uh, mainly about a guy named Jerry Seinfeld. He has this neighbor, Kramer, who, if he gets uh, an, an idea for an invention, or he has a burning question, or he finds you know, the best cantaloupe he's ever bought in New York, then he busts into Jerry's apartment. And if he can't bust in, then he's knocking. He's knocking on the door to get let in because he's got to talk to Jerry right then. That's the picture that Jesus gives us that he wants us to have when we think about prayer. And so he builds this picture of relentlessness. He actually uses a a kind of a similar image to the the Kramer account. 
um, when he's talking with his disciples about this more in the Gospel of Luke. So uh, this will be up on the screen too, but let me read what Jesus says. It says, And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not give up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So this is the picture that Jesus paints of prayer, what prayer is supposed to look like. It's, I've got these people kind of crash my home. They arrive unexpectedly at midnight. Hospitality is really important to me as a Jewish man, and so I want to open my house to them. I have no food. And so I go to my next door neighbor, and I'm hammering on the door at midnight. I'm saying, hey, hey, I need some bread. And he says, even if he doesn't get up because he's my friend, if I just keep at it, finally he'll just wear down and say, fine, I'll give you the bread. So that's the image that Jesus lays out for us in prayer. He wants us to pray relentlessly for the things, not just the things we feel like we should desire or the things that we think God wants to hear, because God knows everything that's in our hearts. You know, it's like God sees everything. He knows the things that we want, that we feel like we shouldn't want, that we have questions about. And he says, bring them all to me. Bring them all to me and bring them relentlessly. Bring them before God. So relentless prayer, we're going to talk through the sermon. Um, it brings, it's good for three reasons and good for us for three reasons. The first one from this point is that it shows what we value. Relentless prayer shows what we value. See, one of the reasons that I can't remember all the things my kid, kids asked me for in the 45 minutes I had with them this morning is because those things, they weren't that really important to them. You know, like they asked me to put their shoes on, and then they're tired of being outside. They don't want to go anyway, and, you know, like 60 seconds later, they want something different. Um, a different scenario with my kids is my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Max, um, loves the restaurant Yats. So we have this kind of family tradition where on Thursday evenings, we'll go to the Indy Reads bookstore on Mass Ave, uh, hang out there for a bit, and then walk over to Yats and get dinner. And so you can pretty much always find the Ray family at the Mass Ave Yats between 6 and 7 on a, a Thursday evening. Max, uh, he doesn't ask for really other foods or other restaurants. He wakes up almost every morning, almost every day of his life for the last several months. At some point, he'll say, go to Yats? Go to Yats? We can go on a Thursday night. He'll wake up on Friday morning. Go to Yats? It's like, no, nope, buddy, we go on Thursdays. So, okay, he has no idea. You know, he doesn't know time. He doesn't know what Thursday is, but uh, it's coming, and he's going to ask for it the other six days up until Thursday morning when we say, yeah, buddy, we're going today. It's like, yeah. So I, <laughs> I'm still learning a lot about my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Max, but this I know. He values Yats. He loves Yats. And so uh, relentless prayer, if nothing else, it shows us the things that matter most to us. Because if we have any kind of faith at all in God or in the universe, whether you're Christian or not, the thing, if you value something, you're going to pray for it. You're going to ask for it. You're going to talk to other people about it. This means also that you're going to talk to God about it. And that's what God wants. He wants us to bother him with our desires, our unfiltered desires. You know, good, bad, we have no idea. God wants us to bother him with them. 
Um, this, this isn't the only image Jesus uses to describe prayer this way, but it should be relentless because it shows our hearts. And what we find is if we examine our prayers, one, you know, God wants us to look at our prayer life and ask, am, am I praying relentlessly? Would I say that the desires I have, that I'm bringing them before God, not in a complex way, building these sort of, you know, intense logical arguments, he doesn't need that, but regularly, daily, is this something I'm asking God for that I'm wanting, genuinely wanting from him? Does that show up in my prayer life? And then what are the things that I do want? It's kind of a corollary question to that. Of What are the things that I value, that I want to think about, that I want to be asking about? And so that's application one. Jesus wants us to pray relentlessly. Now that could be, um, it could be that Jesus wants us to pray relentlessly because God is slow of hearing. Or because God is slow to move, he has to be impressed, he can't be bothered to listen to us. Um, that, you know, theoretically, that could be why we have to pray relentlessly. But what we see in the rest of this passage is that is not at all why God wants us to pray relentlessly. Let me read verses 9 to 11. Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, We'll give him a serpent. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What Jesus says here, and what he says over and over and over through his ministry, is that we don't have to pray relentlessly to get God's attention or to impress God. Um, there's a scholar named J.I. Packer who writes that um, if you ask an Old Testament Jew, uh, Jew who uh, sort of what God is like, the first attribute and the highest attribute that he's going to say is that God is holy. Whatever else he is, God is holy, which means God is, um, he is all-powerful. He is completely different from me. He is completely pure. He's completely other. And so what, however else I relate to God, it's as holy. And so what he goes on to say, and it's up on the screen there, um, is that in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't discard the holiness of God. He doesn't say, no, it's not true. God's not actually holy. He upholds God's holiness, but he brings another aspect of God to the fore. And over and over and over again, he tells us this is how Christians relate to God. So Packer writes, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. This is the reason, one of the reasons, why we, Jesus wants us to be praying, why God wants us to be praying and coming to him. Because first and foremost, he relates to his people as his sons and daughters. And we're going to talk about kind of how that works because we're not all by nature God's children, but anyone who believes in Jesus and receives him, it's incredibly simple and incredibly of grace, is adopted into God's family and becomes a son or a daughter and whether you had a good father, a bad father, or an absent father, all of us have this idea of what a good father is. 
So we can say, I, my dad was a great dad, and a good father is going to be something like that. Or my dad was not a great dad, and here are the, things that, the reasons why he wasn't good. The flip of those would be my idea of a good father. Whatever it is, you have the idea of a good father um, you know, in your mind somewhere. And so what this says is that God, in his holiness, in his otherness, in, you, given, even though he's different from us in so many ways, that his eternal power, his absolute knowledge of everything, his infinite glory, he brings all of those to bear in love on his children as his children. And so the, the fatherhood of God means that God is not distant from us. He doesn't come to it, wait for us when we pray with his arms folded saying, well, why isn't your room clean? He doesn't sit and accuse us back as a judge uh, holding up our rap sheet because all of us have a rap sheet. All of us have reasons that we are guilty before God, that we don't deserve his love. That's, again, that's the gospel, is that there's none of us who doesn't have that. But God, he doesn't come accusing us back of the things that we're doing. He wants us to come to him as a loving and a gracious father. And we could spend a whole sermon just looking at the fatherhood of God through scripture. There's three things I want to identify just from this text here that we read. The first thing, going off the the image of an earthly father, is that a father listens to his children. So he says, if your child comes and asks you for food, first thing it kind of assumes is that you listen, that a father hears his children. Now, I am, uh, you know, one human, and so I can only listen to about one thing at a time. Um, So I cannot listen to all my children at once. I am also kind of selfish. So there are times where I feel too tired or too worn out or too whatever, anything, to listen to my kids. And so, you know, I, I am not an example of this. But God is infinitely attentive. He sees and he knows everything, which means that he's never distracted. He's never distant or you know, busy with something else. God is infinitely loving and gracious as well, which means he's never tired of us. He's never tired of listening or tired of doing things. He's always present. He always wants to listen to his children. And so as a good earthly father will hear his kid come ask for something that he knows is not good for the kid, and he knows the kid doesn't need, and he knows he's not going to give him, he still wants to have the kid with him, to be there. That much more, an eternal heavenly father wants to listen, and he does listen when we come to him and pray. A father also cares. We see from this passage that a good father doesn't respond to a request for a good thing with something bad. You know, he doesn't hear, you know, I, want, I need some bread, I'm hungry, give him a rock and say, chew on that for a while and, you know, come back and tell me how you feel. You know, or like, dad, could I have some fish? You know, here's a snake, it might be poisonous, careful. You know, that's not what a good earthly father does. He cares, he's moved by the needs and the desires of his children. Our heavenly father, again, because of his infinite compassion, and we're going to see toward the end how he seals that for us, but he is infinitely gracious. He is infinitely compassionate. He loves hearing our needs, and he feels our needs. He's sad when we are sad. He is angered uh, when we are angry. He feels things with us. He cares for his children. And then finally, a father provides for his children, father longs to give his kids what they ask for. 
Um, you know, no, no good dad is going to withhold food from his kids when they need food. I might withhold ice cream from my kids when they need to be eating something else. But even that, if I withhold something, it's because there's some other good thing that I want to give. Uh, one pastor puts it this way. I don't have the quote for you, but he says that um, one mark of a father that we see, if we study just the New Testament, um, every time that fatherhood is mentioned of God, it's in the context of God giving something to his kids. And so all through the New Testament, God the Father is giving, giving, giving. And so he says a good earthly father, his default mode isn't no. His default mode is yes. And even if he doesn't give uh, what the kid requests, it's because, again, if he's good and he's loving, he has some other, I think he describes it as a more subtle gift, maybe to give the kid. He may be giving him self-control, or he may be giving, uh, you know, healthy nutrition by not giving ice cream for lunch. Um, But it's Even when he says no, it's because he has a better gift that he wants to give his kids. And so a father happily provides for his children. And that's what the Bible affirms again and again and again, that every good and perfect gift that we have comes down from above, from the Father. That God the Father takes care even of the the creatures of nature, and so how much more to take care of his own human children. And so we have this affirm that a father listens to his children, He cares for his children. He provides for his children. We could lay on so many more things, but even just those should give us a picture that God as Father is a God who longs to be present with us, who longs for us to bring our needs to him, to bring our wants to him. Even, and again, if we're not sure whether we should want them or not, or if it's the right thing or not, he wants us to come to him, and he cares And if he can, he's going to give us, uh, if it's best, he'll give us what we ask for. If it's not, then as we're going to see, he gives us something else. But he wants us to come to him. And when we come to him, that's the invitation of this passage, that wherever you're coming from, whatever state you're coming from, bring it to God. God wants you there with him. Because the second uh, good of relentless prayer, the second value it has for us, is that it puts us in the presence of the Father. Again, if my kids, they're, they're running around shouting kind of random desires, I don't know what they want, and we're not really having a relationship. Um, there are times, though, where my kids, they, there's something that they, they want so badly that they, they start crying, whether it's a, you know, something physical happens and they get hurt, or they're, just, they're really hungry or they're really sad. They, they come to me with a desire, and they come to me persistently, and what I do when I see that need, when I'm, when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, is I pick them up and I hold them. And whatever happens from that exchange, whether I'm going to give them the thing they asked for or not, I get them into my presence and I get them in my arms. And fairly often, that actually, that, that comforts my kids, that that's what they want in that moment more than they, they'll forget about the thing that they came to me asking for. Persistent prayer, relentless prayer when we come to God in that way, it puts us in his presence. It puts us in relationship with him to where we are with him in that moment, to where we can feel him in that moment. And God, if he doesn't provide for us the answer we're looking for, he provides us with himself. And so God's own spirit brings his presence to us. And when we pray, we get more of that. Um, He's in control of everything. He runs everything. Why does it work? How does it work that way? I don't know. But the more we pray, the more we get of God. And so that's the second good of relentless prayer. 
And so the application kind of from that is, you know, God, this invites us to examine our own prayer lives. Of, do I come to God like a withholding father? Do I come to God like a judge who has to be sued or who has to um, be kind of navigated and politicized with to get something I want from him? Or do I come to God with the confidence of a child coming to his dad and asking for something? Because that is how, even again, even in sin, even when we have messed up and we have run away from God, God says, come to me, bring it to me, come here, and we'll talk about it, we'll deal with it. So my prayer life looked like that, like a child who trusts that his father loves him, his father cares for him, wants to hear him. Because, again, if we're in Christ, he does. Just flat answer, simple answer. He does. He always does. So Jesus says, pray relentlessly and pray to Father in heaven. And then he says, finally, uh, I think he addresses kind of the objection that uh, maybe as soon as we understand this text, uh, we raise. We say, what about all the unanswered prayers? The things that I've prayed for that God hasn't given me. The things that I've seen other people pray for that God hasn't given them. Or maybe just the, the bad things that happen to, uh, you know, even Christians around me. People who seem like they should receive good from God, they don't. What do we, what do we make of that? What do we do with that? We read verse 8 first. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. So I mentioned already how general this passage is. And this is another one that, in one sense, it gives an absolute certainty that the one who asks will receive, the one who seeks will find, the one who knocks it will be open to him. But he doesn't say what. He doesn't say the one who will receive what. You know, we'll, we'll find what. We'll, what will be open to him. What this is getting at, and what we see as we look through the rest of the, uh, the, rest of the scriptures, is that if we trust that God is our good and loving earthly father who longs to give good things to his children, that even when he doesn't give us what we ask in the moment, that he has something better for us. That God always has our best interest at heart. We probably don't talk about this in the church as much as we should. It's, um, it, most of us are sort of from middle-class backgrounds, relatively prosperous backgrounds, and so it's easy maybe to get caught up in the, the goodness of this life. I think it's easier for people who have really suffered or really struggled to, um, you know, to be open to and uh, savor the doctrine of the new creation. But the doctrine of the new creation means that the, the end of the Christian hope isn't that God will come and kind of like pluck all his kids out of the suffering earth one day and sort of lift us up to the clouds where everything will be fine. The promise of God is that God is going to recreate the world as it is without sin or sickness or suffering or death. That he's going to remake the world and his children are going to inherit it. And they're going to inherit a world where there, there's no disease, where there are, there are no accidents, there are no tragedies, there is no broken relationships. And that all the things that are messed up in this life, they are undone or they are healed. Uh, I know there's a British pastor who has two children who are, um, have severe uh, disabilities. And he tells his kids, he says, God always heals. His son has asked him that before. Does God heal? He says, yes, always. Not necessarily on this side of eternity, but always in the next side, if not here. 
And so what we see is, one, God has secured a future for his children that whatever comes in this life, whatever suffering we endure, whatever loss or deprivation we endure, there it's secured, and we are going to be so satisfied in God that the sufferings of this world, I think C.S. Lewis says, they're even, they're transformed looking backward so we can see beauty even in the things that happen. There's a, a pastor and a uh, guy who ran orphanages in the mid-1800s. His name was George Mueller. So he's German. He worked primarily in Britain. And um, he, he lived to be 92. So he lived decades. And his life is just is incredible. Incredible to see his heart, his heart for God, his heart for orphans. Um, he and his wife lived their life and their ministry never asking other people for anything, um, which it's okay to ask other people for anything. They just had a conviction from God that they shouldn't. So, and so they prayed for every need that they had, and there's just story after story of God providing miraculously for them and for the, the thousands of orphans that they cared for. And so um, about 40 years into uh, his marriage, um, his wife took a fever, um, became really sick, and uh, he, he writes a little bit about it in his autobiography, and the quote will be up on the screen, Anthony, if you put it up. But George Mueller writes this, The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again. Sick as she is, God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. All this springs, as I have often said before, from taking God at his word, believing what he says. George Mueller's wife uh, was not healed from the sickness. She died soon after. Um, And he went on for decades, decades more of life and ministry in the same vein, the same joy. Um, What he says here, this is not something that we rush to or we tack on when someone is in the middle of suffering or grief. Um, We preached last summer through the Psalms. We talked about how anger and sadness and fear and suffering, those are are real things that we are human beings and we're meant to process and we're meant to deal with and we're meant to bring them before God. We're meant to bring them before others. And we find that Jesus weeps with people who weep. He doesn't smack them with things like this. And we're not supposed to do that with others as well. There's nothing wrong with grieving or mourning or suffering or even anger. God's not afraid of any of it. But what we find when we bring these things continually to God in faith, when we bring them, as we bring them, as we live a life with him, what we see by faith and what God brings to us in sight is it's not... Like, oh, now I see the exact good that this brought. Everything is fine now. But God gives us the trust that even the hardest, darkest things that come to us in our lives, there are things that he is going to work good out of. We're going to see that uh, in full as we close, but um, that that is an article that we, we have to receive by faith, but it's an article that we can receive by faith. 
And if you know, um, maybe someone who's been walking with God for decades, they have probably suffered because all of us either have suffered or are going to suffer sometime. And you will find the strangest stories of men and women who experience something awful. Um, my, uh, one of my former pastors, they, they had a child stillborn. Um, and he said in that time, through that time, um, God never gave him a why. He has no idea why that happened. But the first thing that happened is he said, God gives us a who. That he said, God showed up to them in that time, in that grief, in a way that they hadn't experienced before, that they saw and spent time with the Father. And even more than that, now every time something like that happens to a person of their congregation, he personally goes and visits them wherever they are because he, through his experience, can give comfort and can give grace and can give blessing to other people who suffer. The grace of God isn't meant to protect us from suffering or insulate us from suffering, but it strengthens us and gives us hope in suffering so that even in that, we can trust in God's fatherly goodness. Though we, we won't understand on this side of eternity maybe why that is or what that is. You know, there, there are reasons that God, um, out of love, doesn't give us all the things that we ask for. You know, first of all, it's easy analogy with kids. He doesn't give us things to be bad for us. So again, my kids ask for ice cream all the time. I don't give them ice cream all the time because ice cream is great. We eat ice cream about once a day. Um, but uh, they, they don't, we don't need to eat it for every meal. It would not be good for my children. And so I say no. Um, you know, the same kind of flip the Jesus' analogy. If a kid comes and asks for a snake, um, a loving father will not give his child a poisonous snake. Um, let's just put that out there. Um, parent tip. Don't give your kids poisonous things. Um, so because God loves us, Sometimes he disciplines us. So those, those more subtle gifts, um, God doesn't punish us. God doesn't say, well, because you did this yesterday, no privilege for you today. God doesn't ground his children. But what he may do is he may say no in a moment because there's something he wants to teach us. Because he teaches us perseverance. He teaches us endurance. An earthly father might teach their kid a work ethic by uh, having the son do chores to get his allowance once he gets old enough. Um, that's a good thing for a kid to learn and a necessary thing for a kid to learn, even if he doesn't like it in the moment. Um, but it's, it's good and right. And so sometimes God says no because he disciplines us. And then sometimes, because God loves us, corrects our desires. And so this is the third thing that can happen, the third good of relentless prayer, is that when we come before God, we come to him as a father, and we say, I want this, I've wanted this for months, I still want this, please give this to me. What we find is sometimes through those, God changes our desires. That if we don't just ask God or yell at God and then walk away, but we come into his presence and we listen, then we find that God offers us other good things. Or God starts shaping our hearts to maybe take away something that's not bad, but something we shouldn't want. Maybe to give us other desires and other dispositions of the heart that really are better. And so I find that when I'm in prayer more, I, I'm more gracious to my kids. I'm more inclined to listen to my kids when I am kind of fortified and in the habit of praying. And I think that's part of it is because God is shaping my heart, showing me his fatherhood. It changes my own. And so God corrects our desires and he shapes our hearts when we are in relationship, pushing into relationship with him, even if it feels 
like he's distant. Even if it feels like we're hammering on a door that's not opening, God is at work in that. God is shaping us. So that's just the, the third application point, is that when I bring my desires to God, do I listen to him and do I trust him? Am I listening for what God has to say to me? I want to close just by saying um, very quickly how we trust this, how we trust in God's fatherhood. And the, the primary way that we see through Scripture is that we trust that God adopts us as his children because he gave his only begotten son for our sake. Now, all of us by nature, we were not children of God. It says in Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath. That in our selfishness and sin, we come to God self-consumed and self-obsessed and self-serving. Um, and God could have left us in that state and he would have been completely just in one sense to do so. But what happened is that he gave his son, that the second person of the Trinity, it says, took on flesh and moved in the, into the neighborhood. He moved into our world among us. And in that, the second person, Jesus, he brought the message of the Father to us. John 1.12 says that to everyone who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's it. Adoption comes through receiving and believing in Jesus' name. And so everyone has that on offer. And not only did he offer us the Father or tell us about the Father, but he actually took on our punishment. He took on the guilt and the payment of our sin. And in, uh, in some of his last moments, he was abandoned by his own Father on the cross. The Trinity was, in a sense, broken. His perfect relationship with God um, was was changed because he took all the wrath of God against our sin, which is deserved. Um, at, toward the end of Matthew, Jesus goes and he uh, prays in a garden, and three times he prays, God, I don't want to do what I'm about to do. Three times he says, God, if there's any way that this can happen, take this cup from me, take this death from me, take this wrath from me, yet not as I will, but you will. So three times Jesus prays and he's told no. The Father does not grant that prayer. The Father puts him to death. And he does that because we needed that. Because we can't relate to a holy God on our own terms. We can't come before God without forgiveness and cleansing. And Jesus earned that for us. So he earned that in his death, and then when he was resurrected from the dead, three days later, he rose into a life that is the seed of the new creation, that we trust that the new creation is coming because we've seen it. We've seen that there was one man who died under sin, and he was dead for three days, and then he rose again to new life, and that new life was witnessed by hundreds of people in Judea 2,000 years ago. It was a public event, and when Paul is talking to non-Christians about it later on. He says, you guys know what happened. You heard about this. You all heard the stories. This wasn't some mysterious kind of mystical incident. This was a historical fact that Jesus died and then Jesus rose again and he ascended to heaven. And so Jesus is the living seal, not just of the new creation and the promises of God, but of our adoption as sons and daughters of God. And so when we struggle with these things, whether it's maybe for the first time you're realizing you don't know God, or as someone who is a Christian but who struggles to, to trust God's fatherly love, then look back to Christ. Look back to what God gave for you. And what you find there is hope. 
hope to come before God, to seek his presence, to bring your unfiltered desires and let him sort through them with you because he loves you so much and that's what he wants for you. We're going to close the sermon with communion. Uh, Communion is a ritual we take every week and um, it symbolizes the death of Jesus on our behalf. So in Jesus' last meal uh, with his disciples before his death, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body that's broken for you. So eat this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood that's poured out for you. As often as you drink it, you proclaim my death until I come again. And so what we do is everyone who's here today who belongs to God as a child does to a father. Everyone who has that faith, whether you're part of Soma or not, you are invited to uh, partake in communion. We'll have a station over here, uh, one in the back, and a gluten-free station over here. You just break off a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and then take it and go back to your seat. Um, If you're here today and you're not a Christian, uh, we're so glad that you're here. But really, this is a family meal. It doesn't mean anything or do anything to someone who uh, doesn't belong to God as their father. And so the best thing for you as we sing a couple more songs would be just to, to reflect on the fact of, do I want to know God as my heavenly father? Could I know God as my heavenly father? And if you have anything uh, that you would like prayer for, uh, we'll have men and women on the other side of the curtain over there. We'd love for you to, to come and be prayed for during this time. Then we'll have one more song and we'll close out. So let me pray. God, you're a good father. You have provided us with, with so many good gifts. The, the good gifts uh, recently here of this beautiful weather, um, weather where we can be outside, we can enjoy the fresh air, we can meet our neighbors again and uh, remember your grace and your goodness. Lord, uh, you've given us the ultimate good gift of your son, Jesus Christ, his life for our life. And so we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that as we learn what to do with our desires, that you would Help us, um, whether we're Christian or not, to see you as a good father and to know you as a good and loving father. I pray that you would draw us to bring those things to you, to ask you for the good that we think we want or that we think you want for us or we're, we're not sure even maybe what to ask. I pray that you would help us come to you, come to you in relentless prayer and that you would meet us, you would change us through that prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Bring in the crippled and blind